good morning. Um, Paul and Rump, sorry, I have everything packed up still. <laughs> um, Paul in the book of Romans tells us to give honor to those who deserve it. And uh, man, I don't know that the good Lord could have given us a better leader than Matt Miller, right? I think I say that for all of us. Uh, do not underestimate just how difficult it is to stand in front of a bunch of people who could say no um, and say, come in, let's do this together. Um, but you've led us very, very well. So thank you. All right, today our text for the sermon comes from the book of Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 26. Acts 8, 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are the words that you have placed before our consideration today, and if you don't help me say something that is uh, full of power and persuasion, then, then nothing will occur. It'll just be so much noise coming from the front. But we know that you did not gather us here today to let us fall to the ground. So we entrust ourselves to your care and pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Before I start, I, when I said that thing earlier, I, I'm not assuming you will all say no. We're all going to say yes. Let's, let's get on board. Okay, so anyway, sorry. I, I, I was distracted as I was reading. I was like, oh, no, that's, that was a very negative thing to say. Anyway, so here we go. Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. All right. 
So, <laughs> love you. For the last few months, we've been going through the book of Acts. And what we've been saying in this book is that um, the church of Jesus Christ exists for one purpose. Now, there's a lot of different conglomerations of people in this world, and they all exist for different purposes. Um, and, you know, if you come to the church, you could be looking for belonging, or you could be looking for morals or, or religion or something like that. And you can get all of those things in the church, but there's one, but you can go elsewhere and get those things as well. But there's one thing that the church of Jesus Christ does and exists for that no other conglomeration of people exists for, and that is to be the witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody else will do that. Now, today, we're going to look at one particular manifestation of that uh, in, the, um, in the story here of Philip and the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch. Now, to start, I'd like to talk about eunuchs. And if you already know what a eunuch is, uh, bless you, w would that everyone did, so I did not have to go into this following explanation. But I'm going to try to keep it family friendly. Um, a eunuch is a man uh, who has been physically sterilized so as to change his hormonal makeup, if you take my meaning. Okay, let's go. All right. If, if not, then talk to me afterwards. All right. Now, why would anyone do this to a person? Well, in, especially in kingly courts, um, in royal courts, a eunuch was a handy person to have around because there was no chance of this man going off and doing what every other man in the kingdom did, namely have a family and tend to them and have their attention there at home. If you had a eunuch, that means that they were fully devoted to the court. They were fully devoted, devoted to the, um, the business of the royal rulers. Now, our story today has to do with a eunuch from Ethiopia who is a very high official in, a, uh, in the court of uh, a queen named Candace uh, in Ethiopia. But we meet him as he's returning from worship in the temple at Jerusalem. Okay, so something interesting is going on here. Apparently, this African from far away somehow heard of the living God who's proclaimed in the Old Testament scriptures... And, and he became what the Jews would have called a God-fearer. That's a hard one to say, God-fearer, um, which means he was a, a Jewish proselyte. And so likely he was up there for some kind of one of the major feasts. Uh, he had traveled many, many miles, uh, in, in, in fact, probably hundreds of miles um, from Africa to Israel to worship in the temple and, uh, and when he gets there, when, when this eunuch who has gone all these miles gets to the temple, here's what would have happened. He finally would come into sight of the temple. He would come up to the outer gate of the temple, probably the beautiful gate, as, as it was called. And he would have found himself, as he passed through the beautiful gate, in the outer, outer of the courts. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was physically separated from the rest of the temple by a large stone wall. And so he would see the stone wall. And, and as he got even closer, he would see warnings etched into these stones 
written in Greek, which he, of course, would have known, warning anyone who was not a Jew from passing beyond this border. That's as far as he could go. The court of the Gentiles, the outer, outer court. Now, Deuteronomy... Uh, Deuteronomy 23 and Leviticus 21 are explicit. Like, like, why can't he go beyond this? Well, it's because of some scriptures. A eunuch, according to these scriptures, is damaged goods and cannot enter into the temple courts any more than a blemished lamb could have been used as a sacrifice on the altar. Okay, that was the rationale. And so our Ethiopian eunuch worshiped the most high God from a distance, out in the court of the Gentiles. And when the feast was over, he mounted his chariot and went home. Now, this was a remarkable man. He sought to worship God at God's appointed time and to his own great inconvenience. And despite his exclusion from the inner ring of Israelite worship, despite all of that, he was a true seeker of God. And that brings us to the real truth of this passage, namely, that true seekers are sought by God. True seekers are sought by God. And now that we've got the setting and the character down, uh, what I'd like to do is look at this particular narrative under three headings. Number one, God's providence in seeking the seeker. Number two, God's provision in seeking the seeker. And number three, God's method in seeking the seeker. So number one, God's providence. Number two, God's provision. And number three, God's method. So let's look at the first one, God's providence in seeking the seeker. Now, I don't really have to spend much time proving this to you. If you listened to the passage, it is abundantly clear that God has decided that he wants this Ethiopian who's on a desert road all the way down near Gaza in his family. We see it in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And when Philip does that, he sees a chariot in which sits an Ethiopian. And then we get verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over, join this chariot. God has a plan for this man. He wants this Ethiopian in his family. And it just so happens that as Philip approaches this chariot, he hears this eunuch reading one of the clearest texts about Christ in all the book of Isaiah. And Philip asks if he understands. And the eunuch says something astonishing. He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me, unless someone guides me? Now, we learn something very significant about God in this passage. Number one, that he is sovereign in bringing people into his kingdom. He uses his own power to bring people into his kingdom. And he will go to enormous lengths, even to bring a single man on a desert road far from Jerusalem into his family. Now we also learn something about the act of seeking here. We learn something about God, but we also learn something about the seeker himself. First of all, uh, well, before we get there, I, I mean, what we learn about the act of seeking is that, um, well, yeah, let's go into that now. Number, number one, first, <laughs> this man acts on his desires to be included in God's kingdom. 
This man acts on his desires to be included in God's kingdom. Now, it may be that there's some people in my hearing today that are seekers, that are looking for the kingdom of God. Who, you, maybe you're not a Christian, but you, something intrigues you about it. Something is, is, is tantalizing about it or, or puzzling, and, and you're, you're here right now. There, there's a good word for you. So, so here's how to seek, Okay. He acts on his desires to be included. He makes this great journey from Jerusalem to, to Jerusalem to worship, even if he only gets to worship from afar. Now, we have no indication that he was like, you know, bitter or resentful because of his exclusion from the inner courts. Um, he just simply went where God's people were to be found. And that is the action of a true seeker. And so if you're here today, um, you're doing well. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, you're acting on your desires. The second thing that this teaches us about seeking is that, man, is that this man seeks God precisely in the place where God has chosen to reveal himself. He seeks God where God is to be found. Now, we already saw that he was in the temple, but once he left the temple, he's in his chariot, and what is he doing? He's reading the scriptures. Now, I've met people before, uh, maybe you have too, um, or maybe you are one of these people, who are, who's like, um, I would believe God, I would change my life if he tore the sky open, wrote it in the stars, set off a few explosions, or something like some marvelous, miraculous thing. I would believe him if that. But until then, you know, arms crossed, I'm, I'm not moving. Now, I'm not saying God won't do that. I, who am I to dictate what God will and will not do? But what I am saying is that such a posture is not the posture of true seeking, right? God has not promised to reveal himself in the miraculous like that. He has not promised that everyone will get their own personal miracle. But what he has promised, and what this Ethiopian knew, is to seek God where he has promised to be found, namely in the scriptures. He has promised that he has revealed himself in this book. And in your seeking, have you wrestled with the scriptures? If you haven't, um, pick up a Bible. I mean, I think we give these things away, right? You don't have one. Get, there's like stacks of them over here. Take one of those. Open up to the table of contents. Go find the Gospel of John, read that, because do you know what? That book was written for you. It was written to people who are seeking, who don't know anything about Jesus. Go find it, read it, wrestle with it, and that is the action of a true seeker. And I have good news for you. If you are seeking the truth, if you long to know God and, and to find your dwelling in the truth, then the good news is that longing itself is the work of God. I know I say that all the time, but it is. That longing is a sign that God is at work in you. You are sitting here among us who love Jesus, and you are earnestly seeking after him, and you have a whole ream of questions for which you do not have the answers yet. And do you know what? If the God of the scriptures is a God who doesn't change, then listen, then I know something right now, that he is whispering in the ear of one of his servants saying about you, go down to Gaza. I have something for you there. 
I, I have somebody you need to speak to. He is, he is considering you right now. Or else God is a liar. It could be that I am that man for you. I, I don't presume to be, but it could be. And my word for you is this. Don't resist him. Believe. He has brought you here today because today is the day of your salvation. The forgiveness of your sins for your own rejoicing. So, let's move on. That was God's providence. He, he has plans for people. He wants to bring them into his kingdom. He wants his table to be full. But secondly, God has provision in seeking the seeker. Now, in a word, God's provision for this particular seeker, the Ethiopian, was Philip himself. Now, I talked to the last point about how God seeks his people. Now, let me show you how God equips equips us, Christians, to lay out the road upon which seekers will travel to get into the kingdom. First of all, we can see Philip's sheer obedience. I mean, this is astonishing. In verse 26, we see an angel of the Lord tell Philip to leave where he is and go to Gaza. And then in verse 27, it says, and he rose and went. I don't know if there was anything between that, but if there was, he doesn't give it to us. He rose and he went. Absolute obedience to the Lord. The Lord says, go, and Philip goes. And then similarly, once he has arrived, I mean, he doesn't say why he's going there. It's just, just go. But once he's arrived, verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And what does it say in verse 30? So Philip ran to him. The Lord says, go, and he goes. Absolute obedience to the Spirit's leading from Philip. And as a result, we have one of the most miraculous and beautiful and dazzling conversion stories in the whole of the New Testament. <clears throat> now, let me ask you something. If you're a Christian, isn't there something inside of you that, that really wants to be part of something like this? Like, longs to be part of something like this, that you could wake up one morning and hear the Spirit say to you, um, on the way to work today, I need you to stop by Publix or whatever. And without question, you don't know why, but you go to Publix. And then once you walk into the door, the Spirit says to you, you see that girl bagging groceries, I need you to go speak to her. And, and, and you go, and then 15 minutes later you leave having seen a daughter of the kingdom come in to her rightful place in his family. Like, how exhilarating would that be? And, and I know, that, I mean, the cynics are going to say, yeah, but God doesn't work that way with me. He doesn't speak to me like that. Well, that's not what I'm asking. But supposing he did, just suppose that he did, wouldn't you love to be in Philip's position wouldn't you love to be a first-hand witness of God bringing people into his kingdom? To, to know Jesus, to find him beautiful and lovely. Like, wouldn't you love to see him bring your sister into his family? Or your brother, or your aunt, or your uncle, or your parents, or your son, or your daughter, or that coworker, or your boss? Wouldn't you, like, wouldn't you love to see that? 
and, and be first, a first-hand witness of that. Wouldn't you love to be there the moment their eyes changed from, from being full of fear of being orphaned in this universe to be filled with warmth and joy and longing that they've been made a son or daughter of God? Now, I have no indication in this text that God has changed the way he works with his people. I have no doubt that he is inviting us into that kind of work even at this moment. And someone will continue to object and say, but the spirit does not speak to me in that way. Look how clear it was to Philip. Go to Gaza. Go to this road right on this spot. Oh, go to that chariot. Like, I don't understand. Like, have you ever thought maybe you heard God, but it was not, you weren't sure if it was like God or digestive issues? Like, you don't know. Like, it's so vague and unclear. Like, I don't know if that's, anyway, maybe me. Um, Like, if you say the Spirit doesn't speak to me that way, here's how I would respond. Um, When I became a Christian, I was 17 years old. Uh, I did not grow up in a Christian household, didn't go to church. And so when I became a Christian, everything was new for me. And, uh, and I can confidently say, without boasting, that if ever I had an impression in my mind that there was something I ought to do because God was telling me to do it, I did it. Now, that led to some crazy things. Um, and I remember one instance, this was not that crazy, but <clears throat> I, I remember one instance in which I was at a retreat and I was listening to this speaker who was very zealous uh, talking about the evils of rated R movies and how, um, and how he had, under the conviction of the spirit, gone out, taken all of his movies, rated R movies, and threw them away. And so, man, I felt a deep conviction of the spirit. I've always loved movies. My first job was in a movie theater. Um, and, uh, and so I, on, on my large collection of movies, there were a lot of rated R titles when I was 17. But I was 17, so it was okay. Um, and, and so under that conviction, I went home. Uh, I gathered up all my rated R movies. I stuck them in my car. I drove them over to the church dumpster. Why the church dumpster? I don't know. But, <laughs> but I just remember taking that box and dumping them, just hearing them hit the sound of sanctification. And <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, never mind that there were probably some uh, PG-13 movies on my shelf that were worse than the rated R movies, but that's not the point. That's not the point. I obeyed what I was sure that the Spirit was saying to me. I don't regret that action. I, I, don't, I seriously doubt that I would do that today. And you know why? Because I'm older, I'm wiser, I, I'm a little more moderate in my understanding of things. Like, um, that was a little rash, a little, um, a little crazy. And whether it was right for me to do or not, I don't know. But what I do know is that my 17-year-old self was probably much closer to Philip than my 38-year-old self 
is, with all of my justifications and all of my wisdom. See, we who have been Christians for a long time grow dull to the prompting of the Spirit. And if my objection is that I can't be a part of something like this because God doesn't speak to me in that way, my response is, we've probably learned to ignore the voice of the Spirit and therefore our ears have likely grown dull over time. And the only remedy I know for that condition is to resolve obedience even to the vaguest of promptings. Maybe it'll be right, maybe it'll be wrong, but, but the act of it, the obedience of it, the faithfulness of it, I think you'll find will open your ears over time. Even a small act of obedience sharpens our hearing. And if, when I was saying, don't you long for those things, if your answer to that was yes, then this is your invitation. Even the vaguest of those impressions go. Now, here's the second thing we learn about God's call to Philip. When God calls a person in that way to go to, to witness to the resurrection of Jesus, when God calls a person in that way, he also lays out the path by which they are to get there. Now, I'd like, I, I know that we'd like to have the whole way mapped out for us, like we do on Google Maps, you know, start here, five miles, turn there, go here, and your destination is here. But that's not how God dealt with Philip, is it? Just go to Gaza. That's first. Once you get there, all right, now go to that chariot. That's next. And he went. When God calls us to make provision for seekers, he also provides us the way. And I know some of you, I know some of you, feel that particular calling. It, there, there are people in your head, you're picturing them right now, and maybe you're like, oh, I don't, I, I know this is going to put me under obligation if I start thinking about this, but it, there's people in your head, in your heart, and your heart breaks for them, and you feel like this calling to witness to the resurrection of Christ to them. And his promise to you, no matter how hard it is, is that he will provide the way. Your only task is to obey what you've been given. That's it. Now, the most beautiful form of this promise, at least in my opinion, comes to us at the end of Psalm 77. As the psalmist is speaking about the Israelites crossing the water, and oh, just uh, the Red Sea, listen to this. He says, your way, Lord, was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The footprints are unseen, and yet his way is through the waters. So we must obey. Thirdly, let's look at God's method in seeking the seeker. We've seen his providence, we've seen his provision. Now let's look at his method. So God wanted this man, he provided this man. How did he get this man? Well, we know from the story that the eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> and then listen to verses 34 and 35. He says, and the eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The eunuch is pondering the scriptures. This is astonishing. He's pondering the scriptures, and he has a very significant question about what he's reading. And then we get those most magnificent of words. Beginning with this scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Philip began exactly where this eunuch was. He didn't say to the eunuch, you know, meet me on 3rd and Main and I'll lead you from there. No, Philip tra- tra- traversed the city, found the eunuch where he was standing on the corner and said, come with me, I will take you to where we're going. And that is an amazing thing. We tend to view um, evangelism or proclamation or witness, however you want to say it, as forcing our views upon another who is willfully resisting us and and so no wonder no one likes doing it that sounds awful unless you just get pleasure out of being a jerk to other people i don't know who would enjoy doing that i think we often engage people like that. I think we often engage people at the level of their statements rather than the level of their questions. I'm going to say that again. We have to be careful not to engage people at the level of their statements, but rather at the level of their questions. And here's what I mean by that. Um, people have certain views about the world, certain views about politics, certain views about religion, Um, And at the end of most of those sentences is a period. You know what I'm talking about? At the end of most, people believe these things decisively, and there is no question about it, about how the world works. They hold certain opinions that are not only unbreakable, but they're unbendable. And so... What we are tempted to do sometimes, maybe not you, maybe just me, um, is to take our unbreakable statements and start whacking away at their unbreakable statements, and nothing happens except a lot of noise and maybe a lot of pain, and, uh, and we don't get this, this beauty that we see here in the passage with Philip. Now, um, I'm not saying that there's no time for speaking truth into hostile environments. Surely there is. Um, But this passage makes me wonder if that's always the best way, or even if mostly the best way. What if we began with people's questions instead? Now, of course, that's actually much more difficult. Philip is like this highly trained musician who you could put a piece of music in front of him and he could sight read it like that. He could, no no matter, without any preparation, just put the piece of music there and he plays it beautifully. Start with any question and he could tell you about Jesus. Um, Now, this requires us, of course, to have people's questions, or excuse me, our ears tuned to people's questions and not their statements. It was not planned that the, the, the equipping course that was announced a little while ago happened to be, you know, starting tomorrow, and I'm preaching on this now. This is not like, I mean, but it's amazing to me. So Ivy is going to do this course, and uh, hearing people sharing Jesus starts tomorrow, and the, the whole point of the course 
is to learn to compassionately listen to people's questions. Not only to their questions, but to try to find the questioner behind the question and, and to answer those questions. Like, what? Okay, go enroll in that. That's gonna be great. Seven weeks? Seven weeks, okay? If, okay, if, if you find that this is something that is intriguing to you, like if you find your heart stirred up by all this, that sounds like a good idea. Where's Ivy? There she is. Okay, if you want to go talk to her, there she is. Anyway, okay. Now, back to the regularly scheduled program. In, in addition to teaching history classes, I also teach a Bible class at my school. <clears throat> and one of the things that I do after we always come back from a break, whether it's fall break, spring break, Christmas break, is we just have an open question and answer session. Uh, whatever you want to ask, high schoolers, um, I'll do my best to try to answer it from the scriptures and start there and show you how this you know, can resolve in the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, one question I often hear over the years, and surely I'm, I'm gonna try to show you one way that, that I do this, and this is not the only way, this is just the one way I do this. Um, and one question I hear from the students a lot, in different forms, but essentially boils down to this. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? That could come in the form of, why is there so much violence? Why does God allow X, Y, Z? But why is there so much suffering in the world? So let me try to help you see how I start with that question and then tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. What's really behind this question is a conundrum. Either God is all-powerful and lacks goodness, which is to say that he could stop suffering because he has the power, but he lacks the goodness to actually do it, or God is good but not powerful, not all-powerful, which is to say God would like to stop our suffering, but he lacks the power to achieve that end. Now, what the Bible says, and here's the conundrum, what the Bible says is that God is both good and all-powerful, altogether good, altogether powerful. Both of these exist. So how can it be in light of the profound amount of suffering in this world? Well, the biblical answer is this. A long time ago, um, God made the world good. He created all things and called them all good. And, and a person could look in any direction in that world and no suffering was to be found. No holocausts, no ruthless dictators, no, suffer, or no uh, droughts or famines or sicknesses. And, and in the hand of our mother Eve, all of us reached for the forbidden fruit and sought to be free from the authority of God. And that choice, through that choice, suffering entered the world through sin. Shame and guilt were its first manifestations. And then only seemingly weeks, days later, right on the heels of shame and guilt came the first murder. And the blood that poured from Abel's body in that murder sowed a harvest of violence and suffering that we're still contending with today. And now we do have holocausts and ruthless dictators and droughts and famines and sicknesses. And so how can God see all of this sickness and do 
nothing. If he was both powerful and good, he would relieve us of his suffering, but he does not. Now, I take no issue with the last part of that statement. Clearly, God does not cause all of our suffering to cease. That much is true. But he did act decisively about our suffering in the life and death of Jesus Christ. You see, the Darwinist would say that suffering is the law of nature, which is red in tooth and claw, and it is impossible to avoid unless you happen to be at the top of the food chain. The Buddhist would say that suffering is not real. It's merely an illusion born of your desires. But Jesus said, is suffering... He said, suffering is not the way it was supposed to be, and it is very much real. And so, our Lord humbled himself, and he became a man, and he clothed himself in the rags of our suffering. Jesus suffered poverty and want. Jesus suffered hunger and weariness. Jesus suffered at the hand of court officials who should have been concerned about justice, but instead mocked him, spat upon him, punched him, whipped him. And as they laid his body down on a cross of wood, they drove huge spikes through the sinews of his arms and his feet. And then they let him hang there for hours in the Mediterranean sun. And even there on the cross, he was further mocked. He saved others. Let him save himself. Come down off the cross if you are the son of God. But the greatest suffering of all still was to come. At noon, the sky grew black. And in the most profound dereliction that has ever been spoken, Words came out of his mouth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, every person who has ever died in the history of the world, doesn't matter who you are, every person who has ever died, Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, doesn't matter. All of us, biblically speaking, have died in the presence of God. Where can we go from the presence of God? We can never escape from the presence of God. He is in all places at all times. But there is one man who died outside of any consolation of the presence of God. There is one man who who came below all of us in our experience of death. And that is Jesus Christ. None of us will ever know the depths of the despair and fear and loneliness our Lord suffered in that moment when his father abandoned him and he breathed his last. Jesus was, like Isaiah said, a lamb led to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. And maybe you're wondering, um, this is supposed to be good news? This sounds awful. Well, yeah, this is good news, and here's why. Because do you, do you know why he did this? Hebrews tells us that he did this for the joy that was set before him, and do you know what the joy set before him was? You. He endured this manner of suffering so that you may be part of his family. So that, so that your sins could be forgiven. And because of that work, God no longer holds your sins against you. But I have even better news. 
He has promised that one day he will return and establish his everlasting kingdom on this earth. And in that day, there will be no more suffering, no more sickness, and no more tears. But until that day, we do not have a God who lacks power, nor one that lacks goodness. We have a God who is all-powerful. And because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, is more good than we could possibly imagine. And when the eunuch heard this answer, the text tells us that he believed and he went away rejoicing. And they came to a body of water and he said, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now think of everything that's behind this question. For so many years, this man was prevented from going in to the presence of God, to go into the inner parts of the temple. He was prevented from drawing too near to God's presence. And now, because of the finished work of Christ, the presence of God has not only come near to him, but took up residence within him by the Holy Spirit. And he went away in his joy. (sighs) Is that not astonishing? Oh, well, we come to the table now, and uh, we come not to baptism, but to the other sacrament that Christ has given us, the bread and the cup. There was a time, Christians, where we were like the eunuch, enemies of God, separated from him, across the wall of hostility to God, banished from God's presence, but he sought us and paid dearly so that we can sit at this table as his family. And so we come to ingest the cup and the bread. It goes into us and is digested and metabolized as a sign that God's very presence dwells within us. And so, let me ask you the same question that the eunuch asked Philip. What prevents you from coming to this table? Is it because you've sinned a lot? That should not prevent you from coming to this table. This table is set for sinners. Is it because you feel shame and guilt over X, Y, Z? It shouldn't because this table is set for those beset with shame and guilt. It's here that you will be healed. What prevents you? There should only be one thing preventing you from this table, and that is unrepentance. If you refuse to repent, if all, if all of the sentences in your life have periods at the end of them. If there is no question mark, if, if, there's, if there's no place for repentance in your life, well, well, yeah, this table's not for you. And I don't know why you would want it to be anyway. It's, this is for people who are, who are in serious need of help. And so, as you come to this table today, remember that he has brought you into his family at great cost to himself. This is his body, this is his blood, and as we take it inside of us, remember how he has brought us into his family, into his kingdom from the far off places, and that as you go, 
He is sending you. Open your ears. He, he wants to put you in positions like this so that more people might know the goodness of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your table now, <clears throat> what we need from you is grace. We thank you so much that our Lord sets this table for us each and every week. If we didn't have an assurance of your forgiveness, if we didn't have an assurance of your grace, then we would languish in guilt and shame. But you come to us and you meet us here. Now, as we come and obey the words of our Lord to receive these elements, we pray that you would open our ears to hear the Spirit. What people do you have to bring into your kingdom? Would you send us? We long to be part of it. And we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may come.